the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show on this very, very hot Tuesday afternoon. We're in the three-day heat wave, and it seems to me there ought to be um, some sort of a name for it. Uh, James Blend is, is with me for a few moments, and I wanted to ask you, uh, don't you think this? we had the snowpocalypse? What should this be? A heat wave just doesn't seem sufficient to describe the overwhelming um, struggle that we are facing well, here. I mean, we always put either apocalypse or Mageddon, it seems like, on the end of these. But I don't know. Heat Mageddon doesn't sound that good. Sun Mageddon, maybe? Sun Mageddon? Uh, Sun Mageddon. Uh, Sun Pocalypse? Sun Pocalypse. I think that's it. Actually, how about Sweat Pocalypse? <laughs> well, I don't sweat, so that wouldn't really work. I just sort of glow. Low Pocalypse. <laughs> Low Mageddon. Well, uh, <laughs> We are at the start of what they promise is going to be three very hot uh, days. And today is only supposed to reach, I think, 99 degrees. So we're not only. quite over the line yet, but we're, we're approaching that line. Even the coast, they say, they have that kind of a heat warning in place. It's definitely among the warmer. I, I love the fact that they're, they're, you know, it's how they're selling it. With It's only 99 today. Only. Yeah, yeah. As if that different, you know, that little hop over to the 100 mark is going to make all the difference. No, it's still really hot. Now, you're going to be out in the heat this afternoon. You're going to a ball game. Yep. Uh, the uh, Northwest League uh, All-Star Game. Uh, well, they played another league, actually, but uh, out at Hillsborough Stadium at Ron Tonkin Field. So what exactly possessed you to decide to go to a, a baseball game on a 99-degree day? And do you have your sunscreen? I constantly have to remind my Caucasian friends, you've got to wear the sunscreen. You know, when I bought the tickets, I can honestly say I didn't know what the weather was going to be. Well, that's probably um, now, true. I'm undercover. I'm under the awning. So uh, while I will have some sunblock with me, I'm not necessarily sure I will need it. Uh, but this is by no means a record. A couple of years ago, while in, of all places, Visalia, California, I went to a Sunday afternoon baseball game in 109 degree heat. Wow. Was that kind of a dry heat so it wasn't as bad as it can be? You know, as I've told tell people, a dry heat can still cook a turkey. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Well, you've got a little sun on you so you'll probably hot. probably do better. Now, we're under an excessive heat warning. Now that sounds to me like it ought to have a name. What did we come up with? Heat apocalypse? Sunpocalypse? I think it was Sunpocalypse. Sunpocalypse. Sun and we've got a, an excessive heat warning, which uh, makes that, that, which really merits that kind of a, uh, a title, I think. Now, I, I have to ask you, of course, as somebody who, if the average listener doesn't know, on a 90-degree day would be known to occasionally use a space heater. So in the grand scheme of things, how is this for you? Is this still a little too cold for you, or are we right in your sweet spot? No, I do like hot weather. I mean, there is a line, and we haven't crossed it yet, but I do like hot weather. 
Now, my heritage, I'm African-American. I was I was born to be out sunning myself on a hot rock somewhere, not in this cold Pacific Northwest weather. And I don't know. What are you, Germanic? What's your background? So, you know, the kind of cooler temperatures you you are probably more prone to enjoy that kind of weather. So I like hot weather. We get so little of it that it's uh, it's nice every once in a while when we cross that line and have some real heat up in here. Yeah, yeah. no, on days like this, it's, I'm reminded that Casper the Friendly Ghost, the cartoon character of Days Your, <laughs> laughs at me because he's got more skin color than I do. No, now, I have to say, you've got a little um, tannish. I noticed it the first thing when you came in this morning, you, you've got kind of a hue. There's a little hue I, I there. I blame that on also having been outdoors all day at a ball game on Sunday. Up yeah, in you look you look great. You look like you got a little sun and you're doing well. Okay, here are a few tips for staying cool. Now, by the way, I would recommend that you not come in your speedo the next couple of days. It's just a little too much, James. Uh, stay in air conditioned places when temperatures are high, like we needed to be reminded of that. Limit exposure to the sun from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. What time's your game? Oh, you're good. Uh, Between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., that's when the UV rays are the strongest. Try to schedule activities in the morning and evening, as James has. Open windows to allow fresh air to circulate, especially during morning and evening hours, and close shades on west-facing windows during the afternoon hours. Our house looks like a virtual cave. Nothing is open. You would think uh, people moved out long ago, but it's cool in there, and, uh, of course, Dan Rice is still convalescing at home. He'll be comfortable. Use portable electric fans to remove hot air from rooms or draw in colder air. In fact, they suggest you put the fan uh, in front of a window so it it uh, moves the hot air out rather than trying to blow the hot air in. Uh, wear loose-fitting clothing to keep cool and protect your skin from the sun. Uh, use cool compresses, misting, and cool showers and baths. I'm going to talk to uh, Dennis here about installing something for uh, cool showers and baths or maybe a kiddie pool. I think in the conference room that would do the trick. Avoid hot foods and heavy meals. They add the heat to the body. Never leave infants or children in a parked car, nor should pets be left in parked cars. They can suffer heat-related illnesses, and there have been enough tragic cases that we should all know that by now. Dress infants and children in loose, lightweight, light-colored clothing. Uh, Use sunscreen. Huh? You hear that, James? Use sunscreen with at least SPF 15 when going outside. So there you have it. That's how you stay cool. The other element, however, is stay hydrated because it doesn't have Absolutely. to be uh, you don't have to be in the direct sun uh, to become dehydrated. And that can lead to, you know, sun strokes and all of those more serious matters. So there or you, you have it. Just be like me well, tonight, notwithstanding his previous engagements uh, tonight. Uh, you know, don't be like me, but be an indoor pet. Being an indoor <laughs> pet is a beautiful thing. It means air conditioning, climate control. It's it's comfortable. Well, there you have it. Um, that's our, our forecast for the next three days, and it's also some advice on how to stay cool over the next couple of days. I want to let you know that uh, later in the program today, we're going to talk with Gary Ingram. Ingraham, I think, is the correct pronunciation. He's the executive director of Love and Truth Network. He and his wife have an amazing story of redemption and um, and transformation through their faith in Christ. We'll give him an opportunity to share that story and the work of Love and Truth Network, working with leaders th- across the country uh, as they are working with uh, those who are experiencing the fallout of sexual brokenness and other uh, difficulties. We're also going to talk with Dr. Steve Ruskin. He's the author most recently of America's First Great Eclipse, How Scientists, Tourists, and the Rocky Mountain Eclipse 
of uh, 1878 changed astronomy forever. Well, we are expecting one in 2017, and we're going to talk about that eclipse. I should mention that uh, Dr. Ruskin is an award-winning historian of astronomy with a Ph.D. in history and philosophy of science from the University of Notre Dame. He was a uh, visiting researcher at Cambridge University, England, on a grant from the National Science Foundation. He's also an alumnus of the Launchpad Astronomy Workshop. He's currently serving as the moderator of Hastro L, the long-running history of astronomy uh, list serve and is on the board of advisors for the National Space Science and Technology Institute. So this is a pretty big deal. And we're going to talk about this eclipse thing that's coming and uh, what we might expect. Now, a lot of people are joking. We live in Portland. You know, the chances that we'll have a cloudy sky and won't see a thing eh, might be a little higher than we'd like to imagine. But people are coming from all over the country. Uh, to enjoy a very brief uh, view of the total solar eclipse that's coming on the 21st of August. We want to make sure you know what to look for, where to look for it, and uh, what protection you might need in that process. So he's going to join us later in the uh, in the 5 o'clock hour. So I hope you can stick around uh, um, and uh, enjoy that. Uh, anyway, we're going to come back and talk a bit about uh, what's been going on in Washington and elsewhere. And unfortunately, there's a lot going on there. It's not necessarily productive. But there's a lot of activity. I suppose movement is good. It keeps the uh, you know heart beating. But um, I think some of our hearts are beating a little too quickly out of sheer frustration <laughs> and wonderment over uh, what's happening and not happening in Washington. We'll cover some of that when we come back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, the president has now appointed uh, the general to become the chief of staff. And the question being asked by some insiders is whether or not the president is going to give General Kelly the authority he needs to succeed. Tom Johnson says, quotes uh, Dick Cheney and saying, somebody's got to be in charge. Somebody's got to be the go-to guy uh, who can go to the Oval Office and deliver a very tough message to the president. Well, with that, with the last Friday's appointment of retired general and Department of Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly to the White House chief of staff position, followed by quickly firing the uh, communications director, Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, Monday afternoon, the Trump administration is undergoing yet another radical transformation, and it may look like chaos, but the moves, according to Todd Johnson, are signs that things are being brought under control. And while Republican operatives have lauded the latest shakeup of staff at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, there's still a fundamental question about the way uh, that they're going to move forward, the way ahead for this beleaguered administration. And will Trump actually empower Kelly to take the traditional role of a chief of staff, or will he continue to facilitate an environment in the executive man- uh, mansion, rather, that's more reminiscent of an episode of Game of Thrones? Well, Kelly's firing of uh, Trump's pal Scaramucci gives an indication, as does the fact that all personnel will now go through Kelly, um, is uh, perhaps promising. That's That wasn't the case with Reince Priebus, which handcuffed him from the beginning. Before examining Trump's frenetic management style, however, Mr. Johnson suggests uh, that it's important to look at three reasons why the president chose John Kelly, General John Kelly, 
They'll not only provide some insight into Trump's thought process, but also some indicators about the future. Well, let's hope that's the case. And these are the three reasons he offers as an explanation to give some insight. First, the president viewed Kelly's uh, performance at DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, to be top notch. And more importantly, Kelly was incredibly loyal to Trump during the administration's bungled executive order on immigration and travel restrictions in February. Trump has said on numerous occasions that he values the trait of loyalty above all others, and he believes Kelly is a person he can trust. Well, loyalty, uh, like love, includes telling the truth even when it's difficult to hear. We'll see if that form of loyalty uh, serves him well. And I'm referring to the executive, not just the... uh, chief of staff. Second, Kelly is a retired senior military officer and Trump's loves generals, as envisioned by his selection of Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster as national security advisor, retired four-star General James Mattis to be secretary of defense. Trump believes a military officer can bring some badly needed order and discipline to the White House that was sorely missed under Priebus. And let's hope that order applies to the president himself. There is some procedure for his logic, some precedence rather. Back in 1973, former Supreme Allied Commander Alexander Haig. He held the chief of staff position in the Nixon administration, was later credited by a former official for holding the office together during the final days of the Watergate crisis. Let's hope that's not what uh, uh, General Kelly will be required to do, but nonetheless, there is at least uh, something to consider. Third, Trump values Kelly's former experience in the nation's capital. During his storied career, he served at the Pentagon and worked closely with significant decision makers from both parties. He served as a military assistant to both Leon Panetta and Robert Gates was lauded by both men for his dedication to duty and ability to get things done. More importantly, he was expected to uh, be contentious political atmosphere, was exposed there to it, surrounding the D.C. Beltway and the challenges associated with implementing policy, which leads us back to the question of whether Trump is serious about enabling Kelly to thrive in his new position. And while we believe uh, Trump respects Kelly, we doubt Trump is going to change his leadership uh, style. And as a result, the chaos surrounding this administration will continue to swirl. Uh, we will see what uh, what happens as the septuagenarian former businessman. Trump is uh, loath to change. We'll see if the uh, general can work in that environment effectively and if, in fact, the president will cede the authority needed for General Kelly to succeed. One insider, the Washington Examiner, is uh, reporting uh, that in less than one day, General John Kelly has, in fact, put everyone on notice that he means business. From the moment it was announced that Reince Priebus was out as chief of staff and he would be replaced by uh, General Kelly, there was speculation that Kelly would overhaul the configuration of the White House, and it's clear after day one that will be the case. Kelly, as I mentioned, is a retired four-star general. He was thought to be a a choice that would restore much-needed discipline to the West Wing, with a Hiring of the communications director and so on. Well, the removal of Scaramucci, uh, he indicates that the White House chief of staff, General Kelly, will run the White House like a military operation. His goal will be to have the West Wing operating with the discipline and precision and a proper chain of command the way he did when working with the men and women in our armed services. Too often, President Trump's first six months, there was uh, confusion and the disorganization among members of staff when there's when there wasn't one staffer on the morning news in a predicament of con- contradicting something said by a separate surrogate somewhere else. There would be a contradiction with a tweet from the president later in the day. Uh, We'll see if that continues under the new configuration, under the new leadership. I won't hold my breath, but I think uh, General Kelly is up to the task. The question is, is it an environment that will allow him to uh, exercise his gifts?
Meanwhile, President Trump is getting a new director of the FBI after the Senate confirmation of his choice of Christopher Wray uh, to take over the bureau on Tuesday was confirmed. The Senate voted 92-5 to approve Wray's uh, nomination. The good work of the FBI has been overshadowed recently by controversies, and Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley said after the vote, but I hope this confirmation turns the page and begins a new shining chapter for our nation's leading law enforcement agency. Well, Trump announced his selection of Ray to lead the FBI in early July after abruptly firing FBI Director James Comey in May. Comey was fired by the president. I won't go into the details, but during Tuesday's vote before the full Senate, all five um, Nay votes came from liberal Democrats. Senators Kristen uh, Gillibrand of New York, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, Ed Markey of Massachusetts, Ron Wyden of Oregon, Jeff Merkley of Oregon. In his public and private statements, Chris Ray failed to oppose government uh, backdoors into America's personal devices or to acknowledge the facts about encryption, Wyden said in a statement explaining his opposition. Well, last month, the Senate Judiciary Committee unanimously approved Ray's nomination and was praised by Republicans and Democrats alike. He will be and I suppose now is the new FBI director. The Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, is set to announce a major crackdown on leakers this week and the latest sign that the administration is pushing to run a tighter ship as John Kelly seizes the reins of the White House Chief of Staff. One of the first tasks facing the retired general and former Homeland Security boss will be plugging the leaks at the White House that his predecessor struggled to staunch. And in fact, there were leaks about how his first days have gone, characterizing uh, his uh, move to that position and uh, his... uh, underlings response to him. Uh, If Reince Priebus couldn't control those leaks, then he was the one who was ultimately responsible. And General Kelly was brought in to make sure those leaks do not continue. That's a quote from former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski speaking on Fox and Friends earlier today. Kelly, with his apparent role in Monday's removal of Anthony Scaramucci as communications director, already has demonstrated he'll oust staff members he thinks are causing problems. But beyond the White House effort to halt uh, these Uh, leaks about behind-the-scenes feuding. Sessions is expected to go further with an announcement on criminal leak investigations, specifically concerning news reports that publish sensitive uh, intelligence materials, according to officials who've been briefed on the matter. Sessions plans to hold a press conference uh, on leaks on Friday. The announcement may provide more of an overview of what the Department of Justice hopes to accomplish rather than specific Uh, prosecutions at that stage. Last month, a report written by Republicans on the Senate Homeland Security panel warned that the Trump administration faced an alarming number of media leaks that posed a potential threat to national security. It's one thing to try to undermine the president. It's another to undermine national security. The 24-page report titled State Secrets, How an Avalanche of uh, Media Leaks is Harming National Security, estimated that Trump administration has had about one leak per day. The authors of the report urged the Justice Department to step up its investigation into the leaks. They apparently intend to do so with an announcement expected again on Friday. Meanwhile, the Treasury Secretary, Steve Munchen, says tax reform will happen within the year, not within a year, but within the year. That's 2017. We will have success, he said on Monday during an event hosted by Freedom Partners, Chamber of Commerce and America's Americans rather for prosperity. This is a pass fail exercise and we will pass tax reform, period. Now, he's a bureaucrat. He's an administrator rather than a lawmaker. So we'll see whether or not uh, lawmakers will live up to this promise. The man President Trump uh, picked to oversee the nation's finances added. This is about creating jobs. This is about creating wage growth. This is about a simpler and fairer tax system. Well, the last time the tax code was updated was in 1986 with President Ronald Reagan's Tax Reform Act. 
Munchen said the tax code is overdue for a change and Congress can achieve it in five months. We're going to simplify personal taxes where 95 percent of Americans will be able to fill out their tax returns on a large postcard. I'm sorry, I was just dreaming about that possibility. He went on to say you can imagine how that makes things easier for them and easier for us at the IRS. Well, the tax code for businesses also will be changed, Munchen went on to say. We're going to make the business tax competition again. Uh, competitive again, rather, and bring back trillions of dollars of money that is offshore, that is going to invest in American jobs, in factories and capital. Well, Mark Short, Trump's director of legislative affairs, who also spoke at the event, said the goal is straightforward. Our message is pretty simple, Short said, adding, we want to have a fair and more simple tax code. We want to make sure that middle class families are getting the tax relief that they need. We want to make sure that the corporate rate is fairer so that American jobs can stay here instead of fleeing overseas. Both Democrat and Republican ideas should have a place in the process. I think it can be bipartisan, Short said. We have uh, met with over 200 members of Congress and we have engaged many, in fact, Democrats in that conversation. I think they're excited for tax reform as well. The unknown variable is how minority leadership will act, Short went on to say. Obviously, the question will be what uh, do Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer do because they're trying to keep their conferences locked in an effort to resist efforts to the Trump administration. And he added many Democrats recognize, particularly in the upper Midwest, many of them realize what uh, has been happening on the manufacturing base, seeing jobs flee overseas, seeing the middle class hurt in this way. And so we're confident right now that we'll be able to earn their support for our tax reform agenda. He said the process will likely kick into high gear after Labor Day, which is, of course, early September. We'll keep following that story, assuming there is one to follow. Up next, we're going to talk with uh, Gary uh, Ingraham. He's the executive director of Love and Truth Network. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, many of you know it's been a, a month or so ago uh, when I had the opportunity to uh, participate in the Restored Hope Network conference that took place in San Diego. It, it was just a wonderful experience coming together in fellowship and to be taught uh, with a group of, of people who are committed to serving Christ in a holistic way. And I had the opportunity to meet my next guest while I was there. And, uh, and like so many uh, who are participants, I was impressed by the ministry and commitment that he uh, and others have made. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to learn more about Love and Truth Network. They started back in 2013. He and his wife, uh, after more than 12 years of ministering to individuals and communities dealing with relational and sexual struggles, established a 501c3 uh, ministry based in upstate New York, and they're helping the church become healing hospitals. And so I invited uh, Gary Ingram to uh, join us to talk a bit about the ministry and his life, and I think you'll find it encouraging, and it reinforces what we know to be true about Christ and his capacity to transform us. Whatever the particulars are of our of our challenges and our, our particular uh, type of sin, God has the capacity to transform us. Sometimes it's a, a transformation that happens rather quickly. Sometimes it's a lifelong uh, partnership with God, but uh, so excited to give you an opportunity to learn a bit more about Gary Ingram, uh, Executive Director of Love and Truth Network. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm delighted that you're here, and uh, I wanted to start with talking a bit about your your testimony. You grew up in the church, and um, that was that was sort of the, the context of your life, but there were some struggles early on. Tell us a bit of your story. 
Sure, that's true. I did grow up in the church, and I would say that my story really uh, kind of revolves around my lack of connection with my father, and um, and really an over-identification with my mom and one sister. So I had three older brothers as well, but really at a pretty early age, I wasn't planned for. I came along, and, and my family wasn't really crazy about the fact that we were having another child. And, uh, you know, my mom came around and, and loved me well. I think my dad loved me as best he could. But it was a burden uh, to them in many ways, and I felt that from my brothers, from my dad, uh, from kind of men in general at school, at church, and uh, girls and women uh, seemed to be the, the gender that was safest to be around. Mm. And that led to your questioning your sexual identity and ultimately um, testing the waters, if you will. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was highly sensitive, which is oftentimes the case, and really picked up on a lot of signals around me. I was introduced also to hardcore porn at the age of five or six years old by some older neighborhood boys that really just thought it'd be great fun to see my expression as they went through their dad's hardcore porn for me. So there was there was that factor as well. And it just uh, brought a lot of confusion. And of course, at that time, there really wasn't anyone to talk to speak with about it. I mean, uh, my dad certainly didn't wasn't equipped, nor uh, did he have uh, any idea of what to do. I think uh, when I finally told my mom what had happened uh, with those boys and, and their kind of homosexual behavior, they just kept me away from them. But there was never a conversation about it to help me unpack any of that or understand any of that or understand any of the, the struggles of, uh, of attraction or desire that I was going through. Mm. Now, initially, you talked to folks folks in your church who were willing to listen but had no answers and offered no help or support, probably because they didn't know what to do. But how common is that for uh, for a young person, for example, who is struggling and attempts to talk with someone in authority and in particular in the church, but finds no answers? Yeah, that used to be a very common struggle. I think that's still, uh, that, that still happens in the church, but I think the church is trying uh, to become more educated about the issue, LGBT issues sexual brokenness issues, and yet there's still a lot of reticence uh, around the issue of sexuality to really have a clear and uh, and positive uh, uh, communication really about what what does it mean to be a man made in God's image and a woman made in God's image, and how, um, how can we live that out in a way that's really life-giving for ourselves and those around us in the culture. And there's, there's a real lack um, around that issue uh, generally in churches anyway, heterosexual brokenness, pornography addiction that's rampant in the church. And then in addition to that, you throw in some of the nuances of LGBT, and it becomes uh, something that while the church wants to have um, a loving response, oftentimes they're still not very equipped. And in, some, in many cases, sadly, they've kind of capitulated to uh, the culture uh, and, uh, you know, under the um, political correctness pressure, rather than and kind of agreeing with it and affirming um, uh, same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior uh, as being something that could be congruent with Christianity. And, uh, and they've really given up uh, the life-giving mm-hmm. message of, um, of sanctification and repentance and the Lordship of Christ. Mm, and transformation. I love this next yes. part of the story because you... Um, you went to a church, you refer to it as an unusual church that offered to walk alongside mm-hmm. you. They were healthy enough and weren't even perhaps aware of the impact they were having on you, but they embraced you as a fellow sinner because we all are. And, yes. and even yes. though this was a church that was imperfect in its approach, they loved you and embraced you and that helped you to move forward. Well, absolutely. I knew enough about the church that even though I was traveling kind of all around the country, sort of running from one state to another, uh, some of that had to do with job change, but a lot of it had to do with just kind of running. I kept hearing about this church in the area that I grew up in, 
that I swore I'd never go back to. And eventually I wound up back there again, and I wound up at this church, and the, and the pastor did say, yes, we'll walk alongside of you in the struggle. And they were just ministering to people, uh, dealing with a lot of uh, various kinds of brokenness, whether it's drug addiction, whether it's whether it was adultery that was coming to the surface, and, and people repenting of that and really wanting to get their marriages uh, right again. And so I felt like th- this is a messy enough and imperfect enough co- uh, community uh, with leaders that want to really walk alongside of people, that maybe I can find some help and support here. And I really did. And it was really their men's group that was probably the most transformational piece for me. And these four guys, they didn't know, have a clue really in, in many ways what to do with me, but they just knew what it was like to be addicted to pornography or addicted to you know, heterosexual, sexual sin uh, of one kind or another. And, and they just felt like, you know, we don't know exactly what you're going through, but we want to walk, walk alongside of you, and, and we see you as one of us. It was the first time in my early 30s mm-hmm. that I felt like uh, that I ever have a, had a community of men outside of the gay community, a community of men within the church, affirm me as belonging with them and then wanting me to be with them. And so that was really, really transformational over time. I love what uh, what you write in your biography. Honestly, they didn't really know what they were doing. They were just yeah. good men who understood their own <laughs> right. depravity and didn't view or treat me as uniquely screwed up. God began to use his sons and daughters in this healthy enough church to reveal and bring out the truest me, the man I was created to be. What a beautiful picture of how the church ought to function and so often mm. struggles to function. It does. I think the church is overwhelmed with feelings of, you know, my goodness, we need a PhD in human sexuality before we can even speak into this. And of course, these guys really model the fact that that's not true at all. Uh, We simply need to have hearts that have compassion, uh, that aren't rushing to judgment or condemnation, but at the same time, believe in the more. You know, these guys believed that God had more for me than uh, the gay lifestyle. They had had more for me. And so now I'm married to an amazing woman. I have two amazing boys, six and eight years old. I love being a father. And back in the day, I I, I didn't even have it. Uh, I knew that I wasn't, I didn't struggle with transgenderism, but I didn't feel like I was really male. I certainly didn't feel like I was female, but I felt like I was this third neutered thing, uh, sort of. I just didn't, I didn't have a sense of, a really deep sense of who I was as a man. And that certainly has changed. I love the fact that I'm a man in relationship to my wife and my boys and as a spiritual father to many of the body of Christ and a brother. As we mentioned, uh, you founded Love and Truth Network uh, in 2013, you and your wife, uh, Melissa, after more than 12 years of ministering to individuals and communities dealing with relational and sexual uh, struggles. And much of your focus now is on helping to equip the church. Yes, that's exactly right. And actually, recently, I need to update it, obviously, but recently we relocated from upstate New York to Phoenix, Arizona. And so this is kind of a base for us to travel to different parts of the country. Uh, we Sometimes my wife and I are able to speak together. She's a licensed counselor who also comes out of both heterosexual brokenness and broke off an engagement to a man uh, to get involved in a lesbian relationship. And for her, it felt like this is what she had been looking for her whole life. So we have we, we share um, an understanding about the, that particular struggle, and um, but we do travel uh, around the country, and I in particular. She can't always go because of our boys and our homeschooling, but uh, we do travel around and, and really work to equip the church. We do conferences, retreats, preach, teach, um, and a variety of things to help equip the church on um, all areas of sexual brokenness. And again, the bigger issue within the church really, by far, is is the heterosexual brokenness that's going mm-hmm. unaddressed. Mm-hmm. It really makes the church pretty impotent, um, as good as it is in so many ways, but pretty impotent in dealing with these issues in an effective manner when there's so much uh, and, and kind of in the underbelly of the church right now in sexual brokenness. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation again, talking with uh, Gary Ingram. He's the executive director of Love and Truth Network, and they are now located in Arizona.
I, I'm glad to know that. Uh, we're going to take a break. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, talking with Gary Ingram. He's the executive director of Love and Truth Network. He has served as a pastor for about a decade in upstate New York. He's now equipping pastors and churches and how to deal with sexual sin and provide avenues of redemption. And I'm just so thrilled to, to have you on the program today. This is a particularly challenging time for the church where uh, the biblical view of, of sexuality and gender is being challenged, the moral and sexual purity that the, the scriptures call for. Um, is considered by some to be something of a hopeless cause or no cause at all. In this context, I think uh, many churches struggle with how to approach the the challenges that they face. And I know that you've, you're, your thrust now is in helping to equip pastors and churches in dealing with these issues. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is, exactly. We really we love ministering to individuals, and of course my wife is a licensed counselor does that. I do some pastoral mentoring with a few guys, but the majority of, of the ministry's emphasis is on equipping the church. We know that we can be much more effective and reach many, many more people if the church is rolling up her sleeves and, and has a sense of um, being able to really uh, minister uh, in, in the arena of sexual brokenness in a way that's much more effective than it traditionally has. I know in a lot of uh, places, the question is, is transformation actually possible? It really is a theological yeah. question. It, it goes to the heart of the gospel and whether Christ yeah. is sufficient in dealing with every area of sin, including this one. And I'll put that question to you, given your experience and also serving in pastoral ministry. Is uh, is uh, transformation possible, whether we're talking about a sexual sin that uh, that heterosexuals are struggling with or the homosexual lifestyle? Well, yeah, that's a great question, and it's one that we get asked a lot. And I think the, the question to ask um, on the heels of, of is transformation possible is what do you mean by transformation? You know, that uh, my life has been radically transformed. That still, my wife and I are very honest about the fact and vocal about the fact we want to be, about the fact that we still deal with some levels of same-sex attraction. And, and our attitude toward that is, so what? I mean, instead of feeling like, oh, my goodness, transformation hasn't happened, and we don't, we don't hold that litmus test to any other area of sin except um, the LGBT issue uh, in terms of um, uh, trying to navigate or figure out has transformation actually happened. The fact that I still feel some attraction um, toward guys at times but it doesn't rule my life. I mean, I used to be a, bar- a bartender at a gay club and, and really just fully embrace that whole identity. And I was, I was ruled by, um, by that, uh, that identity, that issue, uh, whether or not I was in a relationship with a guy and, and really my own sense of worth and value was reflected in, in, in all of that. And the fact that that no longer rules my life, even though I have um, some attractions that are just a holdover from that, Honestly, big deal. Um, it, transformation has been um, uh, something that the Lord has brought into our life. And the truth is, you know, it, it's a daily walking it out. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a daily surrender. It's a daily picking up our cross, whatever that cross is. Absolutely. Whether, I mean, I talk to lots of heterosexual guys that um, would say, hey, even pastors, you know what? I'm not naturally monogamous, but, but I choose out of uh, my, my walk with Christ. 
out of my commitment to my wife and my vows that I'm going to walk in that in integrity. Yeah, that's the nature of sin and the flesh. It's always going to be something of a struggle. You fill in the blank which particular sin uh, that you're dealing with. I love how you put it on the the website. You write, for most of us, our surrender to Christ and how we steward our sexuality and attractions will be a lifelong journey of sanctification. I think that's a a great way to describe what this walk of faith looks like. Uh, And again, the challenges that we face may differ from person to person, but I think that same journey uh, is the same. Now, I'm guessing there are some church leaders listening. There are some pastors, maybe individuals, uh, church groups. What's the best way for them to connect with you to to get the kind of uh, help and training and, and to uh, prepare a congregation to be that, uh, that helping uh, church that becomes a healing hospital for those who struggle with sexual uh, sin? Absolutely. Again, that's exactly why we exist. So the best way to reach us would be uh, through our website at www.loveandtruthnetwork.com, all spelled out. And uh, they can email me from the website, or they can email uh, G Ingram, I-N-G-R-A-H-A-M, at loveandtruthnetwork.com. There's also a phone number on the website that they can reach me at. Now, I know that God is in the transforming uh, ministry. Can you offer our listeners some encouragement of how God is moving uh, in and among his people and individuals who say, despite my um, uh, despite my particular sin, God is transforming me and changing me and conforming me to the image of his son and will continue to do that till the work is done and he's he's finished with me. Can you offer some encouragement in this area? Sure. I think one of the greatest areas of encouragement is um, when I see people who are really um, bowing their heads before Christ and saying, Lord, uh, your will be done, even though I don't understand this, I'm not even sure how I'm going to walk out of this area that's been such a dominant issue in my life. When I see people doing that, and they're doing it over the long haul, there's something, their character changes, they, they begin to grow up into who they are as men and women instead of being 40-year-old, 12-year-old. Uh, you know, I, I, we have many people walking around who are emotionally um, much, much younger than they are biologically because they've never really grown up and developed that. So people coming out of homosexuality, sexual sin, uh, addiction of a variety of sorts, um, and, and other areas of brokenness, when they really surrender that to Christ, it is amazing how God can use them in His kingdom. They, they wind up with an eternal perspective, uh, and, and, and that perspective really radically changes um, themselves, who they touch, their families, um, who they touch the body of Christ, and, and their ability to really minister to people in the world, even. Mm. And again, I want to return to what you uh, mentioned in your biography, that you attended a church uh, that simply came alongside, acknowledged their own uh, capacity for sin, and so it wasn't unusual yeah. to embrace you as part of that uh, that body, and in particular, uh, the men. And God used that, used his sons and daughters uh, to draw you closer to himself and to reveal the man that he created you to be from the very beginning. So there's hope for churches who perhaps now don't feel like we're we're quite ready or we're not sure what course to take. Uh, and I also want to remind them that there's uh, the opportunity to get the kind of help and training uh, that you offer through Love and Truth Network. Absolutely. We certainly do. And of course, Restored Hope Network is also, you mentioned the conference earlier, but that's another, uh, I, I'm pr- privileged to serve on the board of mm-hmm. that and to serve with Ann Paul, who's just an amazing leader of that ministry. So certainly Love and Truth Network, Restored Hope Network, and there are other member ministries, many of them out there as a part of Restored Hope that would love to help individuals to work with Christian leaders uh, across the country. Well, Gary, I thank you so much for the uh, commitment to Christ that you have made and to serve others. It, it might be easy to walk away from an area that has been a struggle in the past and to simply do something else, and yet you have faithfully 
uh, walked in the calling that God has for you, and I appreciate that and want to encourage you to continue, you and your wife as well. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. Thanks, to James. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Larry Ingram uh, with Love and Truth Network. And again, that website is simply the words Love and Truth Network. And that's all spelled out um, rather than an ampersand, um, loveandtruthnetwork.com for more information. And if you happen to be an individual here in the Portland metro area and you're struggling with uh, sexual addiction or sexual brokenness, let me also recommend right here Portland Fellowship that has been a fixture in the Portland area for many years. Uh, I have such uh, regard and respect for the work that they do. And if you are struggling uh, and need someone to talk to, if you would be interested in learning what the scriptures have to say and what what the uh, the, the body of Christ has to offer, if you've decided, I want to live a life that's consistent with uh, the parameters that scripture has laid out, let me recommend Portland Fellowship. They can uh, come alongside and help you. And they've been doing that for many years right here in the Portland area. Okay, we've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour when we return. Uh, Later in the uh, second hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Steve Ruskin. He is the author of America's First Great Eclipse, How Scientists, Tourists, and the Rocky Mountain Eclipse of 1878 Changed Astronomy, but we're uh, forever, it's the last word. Uh, We're going to be talking about the eclipse that's coming in August. That's, well, this month. More details later in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show on this Sunpocalypse Tuesday. I think it's going to catch on, Sunpocalypse. I saw your eyebrow raised there, Clark. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us about six minutes after five o'clock. Well, in a letter to the head of ABC News, a U.S. senator has criticized the news organization for carelessly editorializing By using the term hate group in a report about a prominent Christian legal organization, we're talking about Senator James Lankford. He chided ABC for their use of the label. The senator suggested to ABC's uh, president, the news president, John Goldston, that an account by two of his reporters, in fact, unfairly maligned a peaceful group whose recent conference was the venue for a speech on religious freedom by Attorney General Jeff Sessions. In his letter dated Monday, the uh, senator asked Goldston, Uh, Why would ABC News label a peaceful group as a hate group simply because of a different opinion? The July 12th report by ABC News' Pete Madden and Aaron Galloway was about Sessions' speech to Alliance Defending Freedom at its gathering in Orange County, California. The article reported, and I quote, Sessions addressed members of the Alliance Defending Freedom, which was designated an anti-LGBT hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center in 2016. Again, the Southern Poverty Law Center informing mainstream media and others as to what constitutes a hate group and which does not. Now, by applying the same standard they've applied to uh, Lions Defending Freedom, and as unfairly as uh, they did, one could certainly suggest that the Southern Poverty Law Center is itself a hate group. And I've already gone into detail before about the connection to at least two uh, direct assaults on conservatives that were motivated by, uh, and there was a direct link to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Anyway, Uh, The report went on to say that this took place at the Summit on Religious Liberty at the Ritz-Carlton in uh, Dana Point, California. Well, the headline read, Jeff Sessions addresses anti-LGBT hate group. 
but the Department of Justice won't release his remarks. Well, the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center routinely applies hate group labels to Alliance Defending Freedom and other conservative organizations with which it disagrees on policy. Now, what the Alliance Defending Freedom does is uh, provide legal counsel at no charge. It's a nonprofit organization to those who believe their religious uh, freedoms are being violated. Langford writes, and this is the senator, I found it odd that ABC would designate ADF as a hate group, not based on any actual crime or action, but apparently based on ADF's belief in religious liberty or traditional marriage. Since I think I can confidently assume that ABC News is a strong supporter of the First Amendment, why would ABC News label a peaceful group as a hate group simply because of a difference of opinion? Well, NBC News also used the term hate group in reporting on Sessions' speech to Alliance Defending Freedom, which has represented multiple clients in First Amendment cases before the Supreme Court. The Federalist made the uh, text of the speech available. I won't go into it now, but this is this represents a trend that's often informed by the Southern Poverty Law Center in labeling groups with which it has a, a, a disagreement as hate groups, uh, suggesting that they uh, are, are advocates uh, moving against a particular um, in this case, the LGBT community uh, for advocacy purposes, when in fact they provide legal representation, just like the Southern Poverty Law Center does for for issues that it finds important. Now, questions are growing uh, over um, Wasserman Schultz and her connection with the now arrested IT employee. Now, hiring someone who ends up being a crook is one thing. Retaining someone long after it's determined that they are in fact uh, guilty of fraud is another. Well, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, IT guy, Imran Awan, was arrested last week over allegations of bank fraud. And as you might recall, he was attempting to leave the country. That may, um, that may be serving merely as a pretext for nailing on much bigger and more insidious crimes. Some are suggesting the details are still rather sketchy, but there are several issues that don't quite add up. And we can look in the days ahead for answers, perhaps, to these questions, assuming that there is a fair hearing on some of these concerns. First, why after the fraud allegations against members of the Awan family did Wasserman Schultz maintain his employment? That's a pretty big question. Was there blackmail involved? And uh, I'm speculating there's no evidence of that, but it does beg the question, why would she retain someone who uh, whose family members um, uh, were uh, allegedly involved in fraud. Did Awan have dirt on Wasserman or the DNC? And this is hardly an illegitimate question when one considers her strange demand that the Capitol Police return smashed hard drives collected from one of his properties because she claimed it was her property. Second, why were the Awans paid so much for doing so little? Since 2009, the family collectively raked in about $4 million for their IT work, in quotes, because they, as as it turns out, did very little work at all. And in fact, many uh, did not show up uh, to the very uh, offices they were hired, again in quotes, to do their work. Third, why were they given access to government information without having received the required security clearances? Now, this is baffling. With their close ties to Pakistan, it's highly unlikely that the Awans would have ever passed background checks, let alone been granted access to highly sensitive information. Tie in the uh, Awans' various nefarious business dealings, and one is left wondering if they aren't the uh, Pakistani version of the Sopranos. Now, again, I don't know the answers to these questions, but I do think they're questions worth asking, and I'm hoping we'll get answers to. It may be that there are perfectly reasonable answers that exonerate uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and others. I'm hoping that will be the case. I have no interest in uh, scandal um, with regard to any member of Congress, but I think truth is important. Finally, why are Democrats and Wasserman Schultz in particular fine with having these um, 
crooks work for them. It's uh, beginning to appear like there may be a big uh, scandal hiding under the surface of the uh, the swamp, as the administration will refer to it. But again, these are questions that should be answered. We'll see what charges uh, follow um, in this uh, in this case. Also, Liberty Council reports that today in Indiana Federal District Court granted child evangelism fellowships requests for a preliminary injunction against it. Uh, an unconstitutional policy the district used to discriminate against the Good News Clubs. Liberty Council represents uh, the Child Evangelism Fellowship nationwide. One of the ministries uh, is the Good News Clubs for kids kindergarten through fifth grade. The case, Child Evangelism Fellowship of Indiana in, uh, Incorporated versus Indiana Metropolitan School District of Pike Township, that's a mouthful, uh, was filed to secure the same access and benefits for Good News Clubs that non-religious groups currently enjoy. Well, the school district required CEF to pay facilities use fees for Good News Club meetings while waiving the fees for similarly situated non-religious groups. For nearly two school years, the school district ignored their numerous attempts to resolve the constitutional violations, and this deprived Pike Township Elementary students of the Good News Club's programs, which CEF offers to all interested students free of charge. Well, the Liberty Council Vice President of Legal Affairs and the Chief Litigation Council recently presented oral arguments before the court, and... um, uh, today, Judge William T. Lawrence granted uh, CEF a preliminary injunction against the policy, which gives the superintendent unfettered discretion to determine which groups pay a facility, uh, facilities uh, usage fee. Um, the Matt Staver, who's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, said that we're pleased that the district policy has been blocked by the court. The school district cannot discriminate against the religious viewpoint of good news clubs. This has been the clear ruling from the Supreme Court since 2001. This ruling comes just in time for the beginning of the new school year. Good news clubs are good for children, parents, and especially uh, good for schools. And by the way, parents have to give their consent before children are given uh, the, the freedom to attend these clubs. So it's not... Um, apart from the consent of the parents. Uh, CEF has been encouraging learning, spiritual growths, um, um, moral development, and service to others since 1937, is actively expanding its ministry into uh, new nations and new areas within the nation with a goal of reaching every child, every nation, every day. And uh, as you know, there are similar uh, uh, children's uh, opportunities here in in Oregon as well. We do have uh, the freedom by law uh, for these uh, Good News Clubs, or, and I'm, I'm, my mind has just escaped me, uh, the organization that's been in the Portland area for many, many years, um, they meet off-site uh, in churches, uh, closely prox- in close proximity, rather, with this school. So uh, we're glad that, uh, that that is the case. All right, uh, coming up, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Steve Ruskin. He is the author of America's First Great Eclipse. We're going to talk about the one that's coming, the next which I think is also a great eclipse. You can see it overhead right here in Oregon. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, unless you have just emerged from a long stint in a very dark cave, you probably know that a total solar eclipse is expected all across the country on the 21st of August. Now, everything you need to know in advance of the total solar eclipse is going to be the subject of my conversation with Steve Ruskin. I should say Dr. Steve Ruskin. Uh, he's an award-winning uh, historian of astronomy with a Ph.D. in history and philosophy of science from the University of Notre Dame. 
He was a visiting researcher at Cambridge University, England, on a grant from the National Science Foundation and is an alumnus of the Launchpad Astronomy Workshop. He is currently serving as the moderator of HASTRO-L, the long-running history of astronomy listserv, and is on the board of advisors for the National Space Science and Technology Institute. He is also uh, the author, most recently, of a forthcoming book, America's First Great Eclipse, How Scientists, Tourists, and the Rocky Mountain Eclipse of 1878 Changed Astronomy Forever. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Georgine. I appreciate being here. Well, this is pretty exciting. People here in uh, in Oregon are pretty excited about what's coming on the 21st, but I'm not sure we all fully appreciate what's coming and understand it. So I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about it. Now, first of all, I want to talk about the, the great total solar eclipse that you write about in your uh, book that occurred in the Rocky Mountain area in 1878. What was the big deal then, and how did that change our understanding of and, and uh practice of astronomy? Well, I think it was a big deal back then because that, that eclipse was the first time that Americans really got together, not only as astronomers, but tourists. And kind of like we're expecting, you know, this year, in a couple weeks, um, you know, tourists traveled in large numbers, granted not as large numbers as they're going to this year, but um, back then, you know, the train could take them out to the Rockies. The Civil War was over, the Transcontinental Railroad had just been finished, and um, they went out west not only to see the Rockies that summer, which was in July of 1878, but to see this great eclipse. And at the same time, um, American astronomers went out there, and this was the first time that astronomers really, in the history of astronomy, had a chance to observe on uh, mountains. Tops, you know, and, and, and that's why astronomy really changed because after 1878, astronomers were, were starting to build their observatories up higher. They realized that, yes, in fact, they could see much better uh, through their telescopes when they were up above the Earth's atmosphere on the sides of mountains and on mountaintops. So. I can imagine the general public, their view of astronomy and their interest in it, uh, it changes after an event like that and like the event we're expecting on the 21st increases as well. I think so. I mean, you know, you just look at the excitement, especially for you all up in Oregon. I mean, you're the first ones in the country that are going to see this great American eclipse, as they're calling it. Um, you know, I know like Lincoln City and some of the others are going to be the first there on the coast. And then uh, just south of Portland, near, near Salem, Albany, I'm kind of looking. Uh, Madras, is that how you pronounce it? Madras. Madras, yeah. I mean, just absolutely fantastic location, because what we're talking about here is the path of totality. Uh, most of America will see the sun eclipsed partially by the moon, but in that path of totality, about a 70-mile-wide band, you get in that band, um, and you can see the sun completely eclipsed by the moon, and you'll see stars, you'll see planets. This is all in the middle of the day. It's almost like, you know, day turning to night for, for a few short minutes. So everyone's excited about it. They are now, and, and they were back in 1878 yeah. as well. Yeah. Now let's talk about what uh, a, a total solar eclipse actually is. Now, you mentioned here we're going to experience that eclipse in its totality and other places in the country, not so much. So explain what it is. Sure, sure. I mean, a total solar eclipse, um, as it kind of sounds like, you know, the, it's the, the sun, the, the solar part, being eclipsed by the moon. And this, only, this, this can happen somewhere on Earth about every year and a half to two years, but sometimes that's in the middle of the ocean or over the, you know, the Arctic or something. Um, so it's, been, it's very rare to have that happen here in, in America. The last time we had a total solar eclipse was 40 years ago, and that was just uh, you know, kind of over your part of, the, the part of the country, the Northwest, but not the whole country like, like it is today. But, but basically, you have... When, when the moon um, blocks the sun, 
the moon's shadow is cast down upon the surface of the Earth, and because of the movement of the sun, the moon, and especially the Earth as it rotates, that shadow goes flying over the surface of the Earth. Uh, it's going to be about 2,000 miles an hour, give or take, um, mm. as it's going across America. So it's pretty spectacular if you're right in that shadow, uh, and you'll see, you know, from, from that vantage, wherever you are, if you see it, you'll see, like I said, it'll be like kind of day turning to night for a few minutes, and you'll see stars and planets. It's pretty spectacular. We're expecting about a million people to flood the area. There's growing concern about where are we going to put them all, but it's going to be exciting. And we're going to share it with people, as I mentioned uh, to our listeners earlier, with people from all over uh, the country. Now, you mentioned with the uh, Rocky Mountain Eclipse of 1878, it was understood that great heights were the the better place uh, to place planetariums and to, to try to see these kind of astronomical anomalies. What's the best place to watch a total eclipse today in a place like the Pacific Northwest? Well, you know, you don't need to be on a mountaintop, fortunately. Ideally, though, you want to be somewhere where there aren't any clouds. And that's why, you know, I know, I know the western side of, of Oregon um, tends to have its, its share of clouds, whereas the eastern side, I think you might have a, a little better luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's, but it's all a matter, you know, it's just, that's the one thing you can't control. I mean, if, if there, if, if an eclipse was, was sort of a novel where you needed a villain, uh, weather is always the villain in an eclipse story. Um, and it's either going to, you know, you're either going to get clouds or you're not. So I guess you just sort of have to cross your fingers. But you do have to be in that shadow path, if at all possible. And again, that's, you know, that 70-mile wild band. And I'll post it on my website, which is firstgreateclipse.com. I'm also on Facebook at First Great Eclipse. But I'll post a link um, shortly for your, your listeners uh, to kind of show where, where in Oregon they would need to be or if they want to go over to Idaho or something. But, um, you know, you guys are going to have a great view as long as the weather cooperates. Yeah, one of the running jokes here is that, you know, all the, the big uh, brouhaha about the coming solar eclipse, and uh, we're going to stand here and it'll be completely obscured by the clouds. <laughs> we're hoping that yeah. won't happen, but it, it could, uh, it in, could. Uh, in this area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you just hope for the best, um, but you never know. And, and I think, if anything else, it's going to be exciting because so many people are excited to see it. I think mm-hmm. it's going to be kind of a neat national event, too. I think, I'm hoping, you know, for a while we can kind of get our minds off politics and all that other stuff and just, you know, I think a lot of people will be coming together for, for something that hopefully everyone can agree on. Absolutely. A moment of refreshment. Now, yeah. being in the heart of the city, I'm sitting here in the heart of, of Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, the city lights, how will that affect our ability to fully appreciate? And the fact that it's daylight, how will that affect our ability to, to appreciate and see the full effect of this total solar eclipse? You know, in Portland, you're just outside of the eclipse path, but you'll see the sun, uh, you know, almost completely obscured. Uh, it'll probably just be a sliver of the sunlight left for you. And, and the city lights really won't matter at all because we're talking about 10, you know, 10, 20 or so uh, a.m. Mm-hmm. Pacific time when it, when it goes right by to the south of Portland. So the city lights shouldn't, you know, that won't make a difference. I mean, I think if anything, people just need to make sure they're not like crossing the street and looking up all of a sudden because I think everyone's going to start, you know, everyone's going to be looking up. So pay attention to where you're going. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, what will it look like from the various vantage points here in in Oregon, for example, and how long will it last? Well, the um, you know, again, if you're in the to- path of totality, it'll be nice and uh, dark. You'll get a few minutes with it. Um, it, it the, the shadow of the moon, when it blocks the sun, only, is very temporary, because even though the moon is quite big, the sun is, is, is much bigger, and mm-hmm. they're all moving, you know, they're moving independently. So the, the, you're, if you're in the shadow path, and you're kind of right in the middle of it, at the most, you would get, looks like just over two minutes um, in, in Oregon. You know, as it hits the coast, it's going to be about two minutes. As it goes into Idaho, 
Uh, it's going to be about two minutes and 11 seconds. So it really does go by quite quickly. Uh, but what's neat about totality is you get a chance to see the sun's corona, which you cannot see at any other time because the rest of the sun is there and it's so bright. Uh, the sun's corona is, is, is just not visible, but it's like the sort of glowing silvery reddish halo. Um, corona, of course, is Latin for crown or wreath, and, and mm-hmm. it's just pretty spectacular, kind of like a living entity. It's, it's really pretty neat. Yeah. I love the the name Path of Totality. Wasn't that a Star Wars uh, movie, <laughs> Path of Totality? <laughs> what plan should we make to experience the Path of Totality? What, what, what should we make? Uh, what, what plans? Uh, oh. We want to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you want to be, you know, it's going to be the morning of the 21st. That's a Monday. And I guess all I can say is, um, you know, watch the weather and watch the traffic. I would guess. What's the main highway coming out of Portland South? There's um, I-5. and five. Yeah, right. yeah. I, I mean, my guess is the, the bigger highways are probably going to be pretty crowded. A lot of people are going to be camping out, you know, for days in advance. So um, if you can't do that, I would say just get on the road early and maybe try to find a, something a little bit, um, you know, a road that's not quite as heavily trafficked, if at all possible. Um, that would be my advice. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but uh, we'll return with a few more questions. Again, my guest is Dr. Steve Ruskin, an award-winning historian of astronomy with a Ph.D. in history and philosophy of science from the University of Notre Dame. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, talking with uh, Dr. Steve Ruskin, an award-winning historian of astronomy with a Ph.D. in history and philosophy of science from the University of Notre Dame. He currently serves as the moderator of HASTRO-L, the long-running history of astronomy listserv, and is on the uh, board of advisors for the National Space Science and Technology Institute. He's also the author of the book, um, America's First Great Eclipse, How Scientists, Tourists, and the Rocky Mountain Eclipse of 18. 18- changed astronomy forever. Now, one of the questions I want to uh, uh, to ask you is uh, about solar eclipse safety. We're hearing a lot about uh, the fact that we need to be very careful how we look up and uh, how much uh, time, if at all, we're looking directly at the sun with our sunglasses. And I think many of us are uh, under the mistaken impression that we can simply provide a, you know a little Ray Ban coverage and we'll be fine. What right. uh, what's solar eclipse safety and what are the dangers? Well, um, it, you know, looking at the sun is just dangerous regardless, and, and there's no difference with an eclipse except for that brief period when the moon completely blocks the sun, and again, that lasts I mean, just a couple minutes. Otherwise, you know, it's fun to kind of watch the moon going across the surface of the sun, but you can't do it with Ray-Bans or I don't care how expensive your sunglasses are. What you need are special um, eclipse glasses, and they're, they're, you probably can find them anywhere in Portland. My dad, we're, I'm in Colorado, and I'm going up to Wyoming for the eclipse, but my dad came back from one of the hardware stores, and he was all excited. He said, look, I bought eclipse classes at the hardware store so you know and you can get them on amazon or wherever um but they're just simple uh, paper glasses they look kind of like those 3d glasses we used to mm-hmm. uh, watch in the movies um and so that's what you want and and there's I'll, I'll post a link to that as well nasa has a website for that um in terms of which which ones are the are the ones that are approved uh, that are actually safe uh, and and we're, we're a lot better off than say 1878 because back then what they did was take pieces of broken glass and, and they, they made what they called smoked glass, and they took these glass, you know, these fragments of glass and held them over open flames like candles and oil lamps. 
and uh, coated them with candle soot, right, or, or oil, you mm-hmm. know, oil lamp soot, and and that's what they looked up at the uh, uh, at the solar eclipse with, and that was just it was probably safer than just looking at it without anything, but it was still not, you know, what I think NASA or anyone would approve of, the <laughs> eye doctor. Yeah. Uh, and, and one woman ended up burning her house down because she forgot to blow out the lamp. She was so excited oh, to see the eclipse. When she got back, she, she didn't blow out her oil lamp and her house was in flames. So it is, I think it's a lot safer just by the, the $2 eclipse classes. By the way, for a little local reference, I was in Fred Meyer yesterday. They had a whole display. There were $1.99 for a yep. pair of these glasses. So they are, uh, are everywhere. So what if we are the daredevil that, uh, that looks at the sun unprotected what what kind of damage could occur uh well i i'm not a you know i'm not an uh, i'm not an optometrist or ever or an eye doctor but i can't imagine it would be good i mean looking <laughs> at the sun is just you know it would probably i mean i imagine you could you know i know that you could go blind if you do enough damage to your eyes so i mean the eclipse doesn't do anything different to the sun um other you know on any other than the, what the sun is on any other day it's still you know emitting all that light all that radiation so you just you never want to look at the eclipse with with unprotected um eyes whether it's during an eclipse or you know just on yeah. any given tuesday or whatever I think we should put the fear of God in people and just say spontaneous combustion. You look long enough <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we'll remove the temptation to look at the sun <laughs> yeah, without them. Do it. and it's especially important for kids, you know, uh, for parents and, and teachers and stuff to, to kind of monitor that because I think kids will probably forget themselves and yeah. they don't understand. So, Yeah. Um, can you take pictures of the eclipse? I mean, we're, we'll assume that we have on our... Uh, eclipse glasses and we're looking upward. Can you take a, a relatively good picture? I mean, everybody's got their phones. Will they turn out? You know, I th- I've seen a few websites saying, you know, giving folks how um, ideas on how best to take photos with iPhones of the eclipse. You know, I don't think it'll be as good as, say, an astronomer or a professional photographer with a with a proper setup, um, but it might turn out. And in fact, there's a there's a project called the Eclipse Mega Movie, um, which is a sort of a coast to coast project. And what they're trying to do is to get everyone uh, who takes a picture of the eclipse to send it in, and uh, they're going to try to string or string it together into one long kind of coast to coast movie about the eclipse as it goes across the country. Um, I mean, this is of course after the eclipse happened. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, photography has always been part of the eclipse. Even in 1878, uh, photography was still fairly new, but um, uh, the U.S. Naval Observatory sent a few um, basic cameras out with the astronomers in 1878 to take some of the original photographs of the sun's corona. Uh, they don't look nothing like we can get today if you go to, say, NASA, yeah. for example. But, um, but yeah, phot- photography's always been a part of eclipse observations. You've answered that this question, at least in part, but how has the study of this phenomenon evolved over time, say from 1878 to the present? Well, sure. I mean, in 1878, we still didn't know much about the sun. They were still trying to figure out what the heck the sun was made of, for example, and they were using rudimentary spectroscopes, which are these little prisms we probably all used in chemistry classes, which kind of tell you what elements are, are being burned if you kind of let them divide up the light, as you pointed at a candle flame. But So back in 1878, and really through much of the later 19th century, they were still figuring out what the sun was. I mean, they had just discovered that helium was, in fact, in the sun in the 1860s. So obviously, if you fast forward almost 150 years, we clearly know way more about the sun than they did back then. Uh, and we don't even necessarily need a solar eclipse to sort of do the sorts of experiments on the sun that they were doing back then, especially since we have satellites and, and you know, pro that we can send out and around the sun and up into space, you know, to, to photograph it from there. So um, we've clearly come a long way, but there's nothing like, you know, an eclipse is still just one of nature's most incredible sites. 
and uh, whether or not, you know, a lot of scientific value can be gleaned from it. And I think there will be some. I know there are some projects being out there by astronomers that are w- going to work on it this, this August uh, 21st. But for the most part, everyone can just look up and see how amazing it is. Yeah, yeah. Now, f- in case somebody blinks and misses this one, when will the next sol- total solar eclipse be? Well, we are in luck because uh, it's been 40 years since the last one, but we only have seven years until the next one uh, crosses America. It won't be coast to coast. This year, it's going to go from Oregon to South Carolina. In 2024, on April 8th, there will be another one that will kind of go north or south to north, come up over Mexico, uh, Texas, kind of across the Midwest and out over Canada. So it won't cover quite as much of the country, but we don't have as long to wait. So that's kind of nice. Well, that's uh, that's good news. Well, it's going to be fascinating. We may uh, need to make sure we have our uh, our solar eclipse glasses, uh, safety glasses, and uh, take the time to look up and appreciate something that happens rarely. And certainly this uh, this particular kind of uh, total solar eclipse. Thank you so much for taking the time to um, to talk with us about it. And where can our listeners find your book, America's First Great Eclipse? You bet. They can find it anywhere. Amazon, you know, it's ebook on the usual Barnes & Noble and Kindle and that sort of thing on my website, which is first, F-I-R-S-T, firstgreateclipse.com. They can link through it to there. And um, that'll also link to my Facebook page. And I'll post um, some information for your Oregon-specific uh, um, audience. And um, they can kind of learn more about my book and learn a little bit more about the eclipse uh, in your area. Excellent. Well, thank you again. And uh, look forward to our next conversation in about seven years. Yeah, that sounds great. All <laughs> Thank right. you well, so much. Thanks for having me on, uh, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Dr. Steve Ruskin is uh, the author of America's First Great Eclipse, How Scientists, Tourists, and the Rocky Mountain Eclipse of 1878 Changed Astronomy Forever. You can go to his uh, website, uh, First Great Eclipse, uh, and you can find um, uh, more information about his book and, and all of that. And he, as he mentioned, is going to put some Oregon-specific information there so that you can avail yourself of... Um, of uh, perhaps a bit more insight uh, into what's happening. Uh, Now, again, the eclipse is taking place. This is a total solar eclipse across the uh, country on August the 21st, and it will appear here uh, somewhere uh, between 10 and 10, I should say 10 a.m. and 1030, um, probably about the midpoint. And uh, even though it's uh, the middle of the day, they do recommend that, in fact, we wear these uh, safety glasses, and they are available pretty much everywhere uh, right about now. We're expecting about a million visitors in the area, so be prepared to extend a warm uh, Portland metro area welcome, even though it might be a bit inconvenient and <laughs> maybe even a smidge annoying having so many people here if all the forecasters are uh, are right. But it will be an event to remember, something to tell your grandkids about. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Wesley Smith, writing for National Review, brought my attention to a case that's similar to that of uh, Charlie Gard, who uh, just this past week uh, died. He was 11 months old. His birthday is uh, one day this week. I'm not sure which day, but nonetheless, another Charlie Gard case with a question mark was the headline, and it immediately captured my attention because this is sort of the time that we find ourselves in. It's not an altogether new story, but it is for many of us uh, a, a, a new story uh, because there's a name, and in the case of Charlie Gard, there was a face associated with the uh, dilemma faced by his parents and 
the position taken by the hospital and the UK courts. Well, in this case, another family there is fighting to keep doctors from forcing their sick baby off life support. But there are some significant differences. The mayor uh, said this about the story. That's the UK paper. Charlie Guard supporters are rallying around the family of a seriously ill little boy as his parents face a battle with medics to keep him alive. Uh, Tiny Alfie Evans uh, is uh, being treated at Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool and suffers from a mystery condition staff are struggling to diagnose. So he doesn't have a specific diagnosis. The 14-month-old, his family, are hoping to find pioneering treatment for their little boy abroad. Uh, Alfie has been in a coma in the hospital's intensive care ward since last December and suffers regular seizures. As in the Charlie Guard case, doctors have warned that they uh, have to take legal action. They may have to take legal action as Tom uh, will not let them uh, switch off Alfie's life support. Well, that's a twist. Unlike in Charlie Gard's case, there's no firm diagnosis. Why would doctors try to force a baby off of life support when they haven't been able to determine the cause of his cognitive uh, disability? That's a pretty large question that's looming. But realize, as in all the futile care cases, the treatment is unwanted by uh, doctors because it uh, it is working. Hence, it isn't the treatment, but Alfie life that would be declared futile if the courts pull another Charlie guard. Half a dozen U.S. hospitals may be willing to offer alternative care for Alfie. Tom and Alfie's uh, mom, um, Kate James, have not yet faced a court battle like uh, and uh, more and are rather more hopeful. It will not come to that after more than a dozen American hospitals said that they might be able to help. Tom said, I'm uh, pleading for help from anywhere now. I've been uh, getting in touch with lots of hospitals and I've had a particularly positive response from one in Miami, which has received Alfie's details. Well, hopefully the international brouhaha that we witnessed over Charlie Guard will make it more difficult in Alfie's case for the authorities to impose another futile patient die sooner than later outcome. Uh, by the way, Alfie's parents have established an Alfie's Army Facebook page for those who uh, may be interested in more information about his case. But uh, again, in this uh, this situation, uh, the little boy, um, Alfie Evans, doesn't have a diagnosis. So it's a mystery condition. They're struggling to diagnose. He's been on uh, uh, their system since December of last year. Their intensive care ward since uh, last December. He suffers regular seizures. The parents are seeking uh, some kind of care from outside, whether that's experimental. But the, uh, the the bottom line in this case is to try to come up with a diagnosis. Once you can diagnose the problem, chances are you're going to be able to know how to treat it or whether or not it's treatable. And that's where this uh, particular case stands. Now, by no means is this little boy uh, or was Charlie Gard the only cases in the in the world uh, where children's lives are hanging in the balance, where uh, parents disagree with the decisions being made by the hospitals, but this is a, a brief glimpse into the challenge that national health care faces in um, making decisions that are based on a variety of, of issues and not just what's in the best interest of the child or uh, what is consistent with the parent's desire to pursue all uh, potential treatments for their children. So we'll, uh, we'll see what comes of this story, um, but again, it's one being played out in places all uh, across the world, I would imagine, and these are two in the UK uh, be- uh, that have come to international attention because of their healthcare system and the role that the courts play, as well as the role that doctors and uh, healthcare workers play in determining the course of treatment um, that oftentimes, or certainly can, conflict with the wishes of the parents, as is the case in these two situations.
Well, taking a look at uh, the remainder of this week on Wednesday, we're going to talk with Don Brown, who is the co-author of The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Uh, which is fascinating. You you are very familiar if you um, are a history buff or you paid attention in school of how wars begin and you know the dates that they end. But uh, this is a kind of a close up look at one of the details of the final uh, combat missions of World War Two and the impact not only it has on the uh, the end of the war, but on those who played a role uh, in that. That will be the, the topic of our discussion with Don Brown when he joins us here in studio on Wednesday. We're still working on some things uh, for Thursday. So We'll have to let you know about that. And I'm actually taking uh, Friday off, which I'm a little I'm a little torn because on Friday uh, and Saturday of this week in Pennsylvania, they're celebrating Dan Rice Days, which they do every year. And uh, my plan was on uh, on this Friday to also celebrate Dan Rice Days. Now, I realize I do that every day at my house. Uh, but I wanted to include you in this uh, formal celebration. We were planning on talking with someone from Pennsylvania and might still be able to do that uh, maybe on Thursday or Monday. So we'll, we're working on it. But um, anyway, I'm taking that uh, that day off. I'm involved in a big concert on uh, Friday, excuse me, Saturday night with uh, rehearsals and all that uh, is involved in that. So um, won't be in on Friday, but Dan Rice days, just so you'll mark your calendars and you may want to engage in some private celebration uh, on Friday on your own. All right, we're out of time. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Day, <laughs> Georgine Rice Day, that's not a day, Georgine Rice Show a part of your day. Although, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to a Georgine Rice Day. Not sure what we'd be celebrating, but, well, that's a whole other subject. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.